How are you, Dr. Devine? Doing very well, thank you. Good. I have a couple questions for you here, so just answer them to the best of your knowledge. I'm, I'm assured that you've already read over most of these. I did. Okay. So, um, what has your experience been like with the William Chevrolet business, which I'm sure, which is your brother's business, your family's business, to my knowledge? Basically, it is a family business. As a child, I grew up with my father beginning his own business, and that has developed into the Williams Family Auto Mall today. It actually began in 1947 with my uncle Frank Williams, who began Williams Motors, and then my dad opened Anchor Pontiac and Buick in 1962. After that, William Chevrolet came along. He acquired that, as well as Bayshore Auto. There were three sort of what you'd call mom-and-pop car dealerships mm -hmm. in the town of Elkton. And then my brothers and my first cousin, that would be Frank, Tom, David, and Barry, moved the dealership, consolidated the business, moved out to Route 40. I think it's been 10 years or 12 years that it's been on Route 40. So. Now uh, it's Anchor Buick because Pontiac is no longer made, mm -hmm. uh, Williams Chevrolet, and the Williams used car, and they all sit on the same property. Um, question number two, have any significance in the past that you would know of, you know, your family business, how has it affected your business? Well, uh, obviously the economy is very important and the sale of American-made automobiles, and when the economy did a downturn, obviously there was concern about that when General Motors was in such difficulty, but they weathered that storm. And part of the reason is they, the economy of scale, bringing all the businesses together in one location, mm -hmm. was very, very uh, wise and to uh, the family's advantage. How has the family business, like as you were saying about how it consolidated into one company, moving to Route 40, how is it like built to fit the community of Elkton? Because like you said, it's been around here for like ever. Right. Well, Although they became what would be a much more, a much larger enterprise, uh, the family has a slogan, the Williams Way, and the Williams Way means that you treat your customers fairly, uh, with respect. You make obviously you make um, a your income from that, but you do so as a responsible member of the community. And my entire family has given back to the community. My dad was active in Little League for many, many years and all of the family is involved in different community uh, events and uh, charities. What is your view on, you know, cars? Because, you know, you being in the business, you must have a view on cars. Well, let's just say I think you should buy American-made cars. It's a staple <laughs> of our economy. Uh, do you think having Route 40 uh, pass directly through Elkton has affected the amount of business the dealership has received? Because you said the uh, dealership that consolidated right on Route 40. I'm assuming that was like a smart business idea, or was it just the location was nice? No, it was a it was a business decision because there was there were three businesses in town, uh, one where American Home and Hardware is today. That was the original Williams Chevrolet. Mm -hmm. On the corner of I guess it's High and Main was Bayshore Auto. There's the town of Elkton has that today, and then Anchor was on Bridge Street. So they were all virtually in town. And so what um, they've continued, obviously, by their good name to sell cars locally, but what Route 40 has done is put them more in the, in the uh, maybe the out-of-county commuter right there on mm -hmm. the edge of the Maryland-Delaware state line where people travel by. So certainly the location is, is advantageous, and that was a business decision. 
Do you have any interesting stories that have occurred within the William Chevrolet family and the William Chevrolet business? Well, we all worked in the business. You know, as a teenager, you know, I answered phones and ran errands and did uh, uh, work for motor vehicle you know, licensing and tagging and things. I, I don't know. There are lots of stories. Some I can share and some I can't. But I did. Uh, my brothers and sisters and I would go to the docks in Philadelphia with my father and bring cars back from the shipyards. Oh, really? And drive them back here to Alton. Wow, that's interesting. As soon as we got our licenses, <laughs> we were part of the fleet. How long has the courthouse been doing marriages here that you know of? Since 1964. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. They started, they did away with the Justice of Peace in Cecil County and started doing the civil ceremonies here in the courthouse in 1964. Okay. Um, do you enjoy doing your work here? I love doing my job. I, I love doing the civil ceremonies here in the courthouse. Can you tell us what your favorite part is? You mean the part of the wedding? Yes. Meeting different people from different countries, and I've married people from all over the world. You do? Oh, yes. They come all the way to Elkton? Oh, yeah, years? they come up from, you know, all the different countries and people in the United States and different states. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what was the first marriage that you conducted like for you? For me, I think perhaps I probably was nervous because, nervous. you know, I want, I want every, it's somebody's wedding day and I wanted everything to be nice for them and they said it was, so that made me feel good. Maybe that would make yeah, you feel good. Yeah, I just wanted to do an excellent job, a professional job. So you said that people do come from out of the out of like the country and state mm -hmm. and stuff to be mm -hmm. married here. So why do you think they come here instead of other places? Well, in your personal opinion, I think most people come here. Uh, we still have the two-day waiting period. It's been in effect since 1938. But I mean, I think it's more. Ca they can be more casual, and it's probably the price too. You know, because. Mm -hmm. Large weddings cost different things, and there are probably a lot of other reasons. We have no blood tests, and they, they just, and I think Elkton, back during the war and right after the war, was known as, you know, like Little Vegas, a marriage capital of the East Coast, and right. I think that trend just carries on. Do you think that the major road of Route 40 being built had anything to do with Absolutely, all of the marriages? Absolutely, yes, in 95. And 95. Mm -hmm. Because they come from Virginia. We, we get a lot from New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia. They just, from all around, you know. Mm. Okay, what was your favorite marriage like? What was it like? Yeah, what was your favorite one that you've conflicted? My favorite marriage? Well, as I told the other reporters, they're all, some, it's someone's wedding day, so they're all important. Right. So I don't think I really had a favorite, but. I did Charles Barkley's. You did? Yes, the, it's when he played for the 76ers. And then I did John Eisenhower, President Eisenhower's You did? That's son. really cool. And, and then I did Ted Keyes, who wrote the comic strip Hazel. And there was a, a TV strip, a little sitcom. And Johnny Walkenfuss, who played for the Detroit Tigers. And he ended his career with our Philadelphia Phillies, so. That's cool. So, I mean, and they, you know, they were different, but everybody's wedding. I, I would just have to say every, 
I enjoy doing everybody's Just for the love that's like felt. Yeah, because it, it's your wedding day, and I try to do, give her this ceremony, this, the same ceremony to each one. Right. To make them feel comfortable and, and happy when they leave. First question, do you think segregated schools had a role in the low graduation rate of nine students in 1964? Yes, I do, because back in the 60s, there was only one school in Cecil County. Basically, that was George Washington Carver High School. Then as um, the schools began to integrate, a lot of African Americans in specific areas began to go to schools that were in their neighborhoods, so therefore they didn't have to come to Elkton to go to school. So you think that if there was more schools open, available to African-American students, there would have been like higher graduation rates? I would think so. At the time, George Washington Carver was the only school for African-Americans. So therefore, uh, you didn't have a great number of African-Americans attending school then, so your numbers were very, very small. Whereas George Washington Carver was uh, averaging maybe 25 to 30 people uh, graduating from high school, your white schools had kids in the neighborhood of 200 graduating from school. How do you feel about being a part of the last segregated class? I was not one of the last graduating classes, but I was in one close to, and at the time, our numbers began to uh, become very low when it comes to graduation because most of the kids were beginning to go to schools in the area. Like the kids that came from Port Deposit went to Prairie High School, the kids were coming from Chesapeake City and Warwick went to Bohemia Manor. Uh, a lot of students that came from Fur Hill and around went to Elkton High School and a few of the African American kids uh, went to school in the Northeast that would normally come to George Washington Carver High School. So therefore Carver was shrinking in numbers while the other schools population were increasing maybe 10 percent. Describe the most challenging time period during the segregation era that you experienced. Basically a few things I remember during uh, segregation uh, here in Elkton uh, when there was a movie theater that sits on North Street. African-American kids had to sit upstairs. Uh, the white population sat downstairs. There were a lot of restaurants that you went to and you bought food. Uh, you could buy the food in the restaurant. You could not sit down. Uh, a few places in Cecil County at the time basically had uh, for colored only restrooms and there was um, you know, bathrooms for white only. I recall in school uh, we used to get hand-me-down books from uh, the area schools. Uh, we used to play athletics. We also got hand-me-down material from the schools, we didn't always get the best of things. We always got hand-me-downs. So, you know, it was something that we got accustomed to. What influence were around during your childhood? For example, is Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., etc.? My childhood during the 60s, you had so much that was going on, so evidently you had to make some choices. There was a Malcolm X, and he had this slogan called Burn, Baby, Burn. And, you know, he was very militant. He had a group of people that he led, and you know, he believed in fighting against the opposition, whereas Martin Luther King came around, he believed in um, nonviolence. And, you know, people had to make a choice. For some people, they believed in violence, and other people, they didn't. 
I myself believe in what um, Martin Luther King did that was nonviolence because you cannot uh, settle anything by fighting or anything of that nature. And do you think that the way you were raised or maybe your surroundings, you know, kind of gave you that view of that violence wouldn't help much? Basically here in Elton, even though there was segregation, we always felt comfortable with the things and the accommodations that we had. So. We didn't see a lot of the severe segregation that a lot of people, you know, felt elsewhere in the state of Maryland or around the world. Uh, some conditions for them were very, very bad, you know, when it came to housing and schools and things like that. But I just think here we were a little bit more fortunate uh, that that problem wasn't outrageous as it was in other places. What type of things did people appreciate or, like, look forward to while you were a child? Well, I was a child, basically, you know, we just did the normal things, you know, you played athletics, you went to school, uh, you really believed in families. Uh, uh, as a group of African-American, I think you clung together uh, a, a bit better than I, I and even than we do now. Basically, you had a semi-pro baseball team, which, you know, a lot of people attended. Uh, there were just a number of things that people did, going on picnics gone to a beach in Annapolis, it's called, what's called Carl's Beach, I don't know uh, what it is now, and uh, they did things like that, fun things. So school and like athletics were like pretty... Athletics, we again played second fiddle because when we went to George Washington Carver High School, the only activities that we actually had was basketball and baseball. We were not able to, and I'm sorry, also track. And, you know, we didn't have the fortunate of, of sports that the other schools had. Even at Carver High School, when you went to school there, they didn't have a track, so everything you did, you did on a grass field. And, you know, you put your cones up and you ran around, where if you was at another school, you would have those kind of things. Uh, if you had seen our gym, which was nothing but a band box, uh, you'd wonder how that even existed. We never had a score clock. We had a little clock that was on the table. We never had a scoreboard. The kids had these little hand signs and they would stick up to show you the score so there was a lot of things that we didn't have but we we survived and, and we appreciated it do you think that you, you not having those like when you're in high school like the best of conditions like at our school we have a nice gym you have a nice track you have a nice football field do you think any of that like kind of like because you didn't have it like it kind of painted a picture of what you wanted now being an assistant principal or did that not have an effect on it? I think when we was at uh, George Washington Carver High School, the one thing that was great is that the teachers pushed you. They had a uh, sincere interest in what you did, and it just didn't happen during the school day. It happened after school. And, uh, you know, anybody that went to George Washington Carver High School have memories of togetherness at the school because, you know, the one thing you did, you learned. And you learned your reading, you learned your writing, you learned your arithmetic, you learned your spelling, all the things that uh, were prevalent then, you know, kids were really pushed to uh, become successful in. Everybody loved to go to school. You didn't have a high dropout rate. You had uh, some kids who would uh, live a couple miles, two or three miles out of town. They would walk to school if they missed the bus. I mean, they did every possible thing they could to be successful in high school. Which you could fairly say is much different to how things are today. Exactly. What was your initial response to desegregation and why?
when 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 the last graduating class in 1954 closed, which meant the following school year that all schools were fully integrated, I thought that was a great thing. Now we can get some of the accommodations and the best things there were to offer. You reflect back and you think about the kids now can be close to the schools in their neighborhood. Many of you are probably not familiar, but kids that live in Conowingo, which is almost 35 or 40 miles, had to get up very early in the morning and travel to George Washington Carver High School. If you live towards Chesapeake City, Cecilton, Maryland, Warwick, Maryland, down on that end, again, the kids had to travel to Elkton High School in Northeast, in Ferry Hill. So those people had to get up early in the morning to come to school. And when they were coming to school, they were going past schools that were already there. For instance, if I lived in Cecilton or Warwick, I'd come all the way past Bohemian Manor High School just to come to Carver. Spend my day at Carver, go back past that school, go home and get dropped off. So those kids were getting up 5 o'clock in the morning. And uh, basically, it was, it, it was tough for them to do, but they did it and they survived. And you didn't know any better. You become accustomed of going to an all-black school in which they were, and you know, if you've never been to an integrated school or white school, you don't know the difference. Right. How did it make you feel seeing white kids with privileges that you didn't have? Again, I, I go back to basically, you know, whatever you had or whatever the good Lord gave you, you took that and you took advantage of it. Certainly, you saw kids with the better things in life. You saw kids that drove cars to school. You saw kids with the better clothing and having opportunities that you did not have. So, you know, some people work to, you know, go beyond that and to get where they are on their level. And some, you know, did what was necessary in order for them to survive. I was one who never, I was never jealous of anyone when I was going to school. And I had a lot of white friends and, you know, was very, very close to them. But I looked at them as an equal to me. The only difference in them at the time was maybe economics and the fact that they had lighter skin. But, you know, we were all the same people. So what, like, what things do you think changed that? Well, to reward it, because now the generations have changed and it's much different. A lot of kids seem to be jealous of a lot of kids. Like, is there, anything, is there any reason why you think kids are so jealous nowadays or ungrateful for what they have? To me, I think right now is, is a great time to be living in America because basically, you know, you have your different uh, classes of people, you have your different uh, types of people, and, um, you know, you have African Americans, you have Asians, you have... Hispanic, you have white, and it seems like now all of a sudden that these people have to come together in this world to um, to exist. They have to coexist. When I was coming up in the 60s, basically all you have basically was your blacks and your white, and somewhere along the line you may have a few Asians or Japanese or what have you, but it was almost like black versus white in, in the world that we brought up economically. Now it's just totally different. I mean, everybody gets along and what have you. Even way back then, you know, white people dated white people. Uh, white people married white people. Back then, black people pretty much stood their ground and they were, you know, dated each other and marrying each other. But now if you look at the, uh, uh, the difference in life that, you know, white people and black people are now cousins and 
interrelated and it's, it's just different. The classes of people have now come together where before they were separated. My first question is, what year did you become a firefighter? Um, would have been 1961. Uh, I've been, I've been a, fire, a fireman about two years prior to the branch. Why did you want to be a firefighter? Well, my father was a fire, fireman and fire member of the fire company. I was on the board of directors and, and uh, he had a desire for me to also be a member, and it was an opportunity to serve the community, so, so I was willing to do that. Um, can you tell us anything about the plane crash that took on December 8th? Um, yeah. 1963. Obviously it was a, a very memorable uh, event in my life. Um, as you said, it took place on December 8th, uh, 1963. and. Um, I can remember very well the, the what I was doing at the time because approximately two and a half weeks before uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. So I was home um, working on a project, uh, putting together a scrapbook about that uh, particular event, uh, which was an assignment from, from school. I was a, a junior at Elkton High School at the time. Oh, you were. So uh, that was a project that I had in social studies. when. Uh, we had a monitor uh, in our home uh, which um, would repeat calls that went out uh, to firefighters when there was an event. I can remember uh, about 8.30, uh, I think at 8.28 exactly in the evening, uh, the call came out uh, on the monitor that there had been uh, a, a plane crash possibly in the Elkton area. Calls were coming into the control center then and there were so many calls coming in, they didn't know exactly where it was located. Um, if you went back and, and listened to the, uh, the, the calls that came in, there were calls from Oxford, from Newcastle, Delaware, from Newark, from Wilmington, uh, Happy Grace area, were all calling in saying there was a, there's a plane crash in this area, but no one really knew what, where it was exactly at the time. So um, I lived in town, so I very quickly went to the, to the fire uh, uh, hall that evening, and then uh, um, it was a we were having a torrential downpour. I mean, just uh, very hard rain. It was a thunderstorm and, at the time. And wasn't actually, it? lightning. There was, there was a, um, a thunderstorm, and uh, it was a miserable, miserable night. Uh, but I responded there, and actually, I was on the first ambit, the first piece of equipment that went out of there was, the first two pieces were fire and rescue truck um, with the, um, uh, the chief and, and uh, an am ambulance and I was on, and actually it was an ambulance fire rescue truck as well, uh, not uh, sort of like they have today. Uh, so, so I was on the first piece of apparatus to actually arrive at the scene. The plane was coming from, from uh, Puerto Rico to to Philadelphia and had stopped in Baltimore. Um, and, and as it approached Philadelphia, the information that we received later was it was in a holding pattern. Uh, when you say holding pattern, what does that mean? Holding pattern means 
because of the storm, it's, it was more difficult, I guess, to get planes in and, in and out of Philadelphia. Consequently, instead of just going right in, there, there was a holding pattern circling the airport until it was time for this particular plane to come in. But been in a holding pattern for a while, which put it over the, the, the Lancy Road area, Red Hill, outside of Elk, just, just uh, northeast of Elk. Um, so that's kind of the background. And I will tell you, at the time that we went out, you know, left the, the fire station after, we didn't know what we had. Uh, at one time, someone said, well, it may have been a Piper Cub going down. Uh, as it turned out, it was, it was uh, uh, you know, uh, Pan Am, Boeing 707. And at that time, uh, it was the, the second uh, largest um, fatality in the number of people perishing in, in the history of, of, uh, air, you know, of, the, uh, of the airways at the time. I think there was one over in Italy that might have been The plane was struck by lightning there, correct? The, that was an interesting... Uh, interesting part too because it was at that time they're saying oh we know that they're, they're not prone to be be, uh, be hit by lightning but the now I think historically as they've examined this and the research indicated that most likely it was hit by lightning and not that that was, but it was not for a while until they actually uh, came up with that conclusion. Mr. and Mrs. Carroll, how are you? Hi, Heather. We're good, thank you. Um, what made you move, want to live in Tuscan City? Well, we uh, fell in love with Chesapeake City uh, when we visited the canal, Schaefer's Canal House. And we used to sit out on the deck and uh, watch the ships and the boat traffic and they had music there, and we would just sit and watch and listen, and we just kind of fell in love with the town. That's how we went. They had, they had a steel band, she didn't tell you, but we used to dance there also. We loved, we loved the music. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we stopped there on our way home from, we had a beach house in Delaware, and for some something different, we'd come up through Maryland, and that's how we just discovered the band. Mm -hmm. So. And Chesapeake City. And Chesapeake City, mm -hmm. right. Do you guys recall when the bridge got knocked down? Well, it was before our time, but I, I know about it. It mm -hmm. uh, was knocked down in uh, 1942 and uh, took out the, I think it was called the lift bridge, and uh, took seven years to rebuild and what we currently have over Route 213. But the, uh, the bridge was hit by a German freighter, and something went wrong on mechanically, I think, on their freighter. That's a little fuzzy in my mind, but it veered off to the starboard side and took out the bridge. And at that time, that was the only way to go from the north side to the south side, or vice versa. So they had to get a ferry in, and that was how everybody traversed uh, the canal. The school kids, school buses, uh, had to get on the ferry boat every morning, come back every night, and the traffic also had to get on the ferry. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, I remember as a kid, my 
parents would take me to uh, Colchester, which is had a famous or quite nice amusement park. And that was the only way to get to Tolchester. So I remember waiting in line for that ferry, vaguely. But that was a long time ago. I was about, well, I guess I was seven when that happened. But uh, it was the only, the only show in town. You know, it's, uh, if you're going down Maryland, that's how you had to go. Yeah. It was quite an imposition. But, you know, people, people tolerated it. Had to. Mm -hmm. What do you know about the widening, the widening of the canal? Well, <clears throat> we weren't living here when they widened, but they, they, they widened, first of all, it started out, uh, it was 36 feet wide and 10 feet deep, and it was like this. They widened it once and took out some of this, they straightened it. And today, it's 450 feet wide, and it's 35 feet deep. So, there's one turn that they talk about they should change. It's east of us. I hope they don't, because they're gonna take out some of the wildlife area. I don't think they will. But it's, it's, uh, it's changed considerably. It used to be in locks, they would have because the, the, the Delaware River and uh, Elk River are two different levels. They had to bring, they had to put install locks so they would bring the water up from the low side and get the ship in and then take it down on the, on the other side so the ship could go out. And they had mules that actually drug the barge or the ships through. And, and uh, with 36 feet, I'm sure there wasn't a lot of maneuvering room and probably wasn't sailboats wouldn't have, didn't have the power anyway but they chose to mules I guess for safety and propulsion to move the ships through both ways now they can go through side by side under, under their own power so it's considerably changed but I, I think we both remember when it was back around 1960 when they dredged it the last time, and that's when they had to, they, they lost the street, they moved Schaefer's, which was probably the, the only restaurant, I'm not sure, but it was the best restaurant in town, moved it back to accommodate the, the width. Mm -hmm. So there was a drastic change in the width of the canal. Do you like that they widened it? Yeah. Do you think it's better? Well, it's it's good for two reasons. It allows larger ships to go through, which which I don't know that Chesapeake City uh, gains any benefit from that, but commerce does. They can have bigger ships go from Philly to Baltimore and vice versa than they could back before it was widened the last time. So it's good, and then for us, we have more to look at. You know, we have bigger ships, different a greater variety of ships to look at, and. It's, it's neat, it's uh, really nice, so we're glad they did. How has it changed the town? The canal? Yeah, the <laughs> of it. The, well, if you go way back to when it was 36 feet wide, there was a lot of traffic that stopped there because Schaefer's was known for its channelery, ship's channelery, 
which means they stocked supplies for ships and fuel. And of course, they had a good restaurant. I don't know what it was like back then. Today, the big ships don't stop, but it allows larger yachts to come in. And before Schaefer's went out of business, and quickly this will reoccur, they would stop for fuel. They'd stay overnight at, at the restaurant. The town then would gain some money because, uh, you know, lots of bigger yachts would go through than before. So it's mm -hmm. uh, it's that part of it is really good for the town. Hopefully, that's coming back. Yeah. What's your favorite memory of the canal in the town? What's your favorite? Memory? Um, I think just uh, just the. Uh, good times that we had uh, down in the, the north side of Chesapeake City uh, where Schaefer's was and uh, just uh, being down there and watching the ship traffic, the boat traffic, listening to the music. And there's also uh, a small uh, dirt road behind our property along the canal. It's nice for walking walking our dogs mm -hmm. and uh, riding bikes and uh, it's just a wonderful place to live. I, I have two more good memories. Yeah. We, we, yeah. yeah. Our son was married on the north side. Our daughter was married on the south side. <laughs> so that's, uh, when we came here, you know, lots of memories occurred. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's a great place. We really like it. Do you go to the South Side a lot? Uh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. And since we moved here, they have what they call a ferry. It's the Miss Blair that runs back and forth from the North Side to the South Side. It runs on a schedule, but they, the owner has told us if you come down and stand on the dock on the North Side, we'll come pick you up and take you to the South Side. So that's really small town living in. We, we love that part of it. It's a little tour boat. Yeah. And uh, people pay to go on tours up and down the canal. And it's, it's very nice. Just a small boat. It's not a big ferry boat. But yeah. it's a small boat, but they call it a... Yeah. They, they run... They <laughs> this is more small town. They run an ice cream special on Thursday nights. If you're down at the dock, I think at 6 o'clock, there might be a half hour off there. And they take who's ever there to the other side, to the ice cream place that's on the south side. And then in, I think, 45 minutes, they bring them back again. So I mean, who else has anything like that? You know, mm -hmm. it's in the town, not one traffic light. I love that. Yeah. So, it's really, really great. Why did I go into archaeology? So one morning, bright and early, I'm out there hoeing my potatoes, and they were all up about that high, and they're in bloom, and I'm hoeing away, and I saw something white on the ground. I reached down, picked it up, and it was an arrowhead about that long. So I looked at it, I looked at it, and I thought to myself, here I'm doing all this kind of work. What did the Indians do? How did they survive? I knew they were here. I found the arrowhead, so it got me thinking. So when fall came, and well, got a little bit less, I went down with the the library and Mrs. Jefferson was the chief librarian. I said, Mrs. Jefferson, I told her, I'd like to learn something about it. Oh, 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 no problem. 
You read Johnson's history of Cecil County and tell you all about the Indians. I got it opened up on page four. It says the Indians were up around rising sun because they found arrowheads made out of a certain stone which comes from Greece, uh, Greek, Egypt or someplace. Greece, I think. We don't have a stone here. And uh, so there wasn't anything really written. So uh, I read a piece in the paper that we're going to have a meeting in Baltimore and a speaker and so forth. So I went to the meeting. I joined the Archaeological Society of Maryland, which is a which was at that time a section of the Maryland Academy of Sciences, and that's important. Then I started collecting artifacts in the field. Then I went to the University of Delaware, I had to write ten themes, and one theme was what I wanted to write about. They give me a, a, a title, you know, nine, but the tenth one was for me to write about what did I want to write about. So I wrote about the first arrowhead I found and how it affected my mind and how my brain thought about the Indians and so forth. Well, the teacher thought that was an outstanding paper. I said, may I read your paper, Mr. Reynolds, in the class? I said, sure. Then he called me aside. He said, I'm going to the Archaeological Society of Delaware's meeting on Saturday night. And Dr. Alfred Kidder and Dr. John Alton Mason are speaking there, and I'd be glad to take you up if you come to Newark to my house. I went up and I took my little box of arrowheads, and we got, we're in the YMCA, and they run us out about 9 o'clock, and about 10 o'clock, we're still on the street corner under mercury vapor lamp looking at my arrowheads and talking to me. So I've been on far for it ever since, and I've done a lot of work locally. Well, can you tell us about the Northeast? chapter of the Archaeological Society. Society. All right. So what happened while I'm taking this site? The, the local paper printed a picture see, of me digging this site. Well, so many people came and got so interested in it. So many people came and they got so interested in it that I decided I'd better set up a local chapter. So I went to the Maryland section of the Maryland Academy of Sciences and says, I want to set up a chapter because it's too far for us to come to Baltimore all the time. Well, you can't do that. We don't, you know, you, you know, they told me I couldn't do it. So I gave them an option. I gave them an option. Either uh, you uh, let me become the chapter of the Archaeological Society of Maryland, a section of Maryland Academy of Science, or I will become an independent organization and call myself the Delmarva Archaeological Society. What you want. So they allowed me to become, so I was the first chapter. We got about 12 chapters in the state of Maryland now. So uh, that's how I set up the Northeastern chapter. And I was present for a long, long time, maybe 20 years. Every once in a while, I get somebody to fill in for years, suddenly they double back in my lap again. What we have in the county, we have a Colonel Hollingsworth, and it's called the Elk Landing Site. It's now next to the jail site. And uh, we found six skeletons at the jail site. And the first one we did, we wrapped it in burlap and plaster of Paris and this, that, and the other. We sent it to Smithsonian Institute, and there was a woman, and she was uh, uh, died about 1400 A.D., and everything was there but the cartilage. Her ribs were cartilage, and they disappeared. The rest of the Indians we left there. All right, so it's the same site. It's contiguous to what we're doing now. So last week we took ground-penetrating radar there. We rented it for two days. And what happens, Colonel Hollingsworth was a quartermaster for the Merle Militia. And at that site, he made bayonets, he made uh, swords, 
and he made uh, uh, gun flints for the old muzzle loaders, where they put the old muzzle loader and had a piece of flint come down to strike, make a spark, and set the gun off. And uh, what we did, we used ground penetrating radar to look into the ground because he must have had. See, there's only two buildings there now: the original old stone buildings that Hollingsworth lived in, and a big house that's still there, which they used uh, belongs to the Fat uh, Elk Landing Group. And uh, we're looking for possibility of outbuildings there. Uh, there's had to be a, uh, a couple of shops, uh, a blacksmith shop for making the swords and the bayonets. There had, and General Washington uh, told him to collect all the food for his army. You know, flour, fish, all kind of meat. You know, whatever he could find. So there's possibility there'd been a cooper shop to make barrel staves and things like that. So we don't have the answers yet. It went out to the University of Denver, Colorado, was where the man came from to operate the equipment, the ground-penetrating radar. So we're looking for that. While the uh, ground-penetrating radar was working, we took some uh, 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 metal detectors, real high-grade metal detectors, and put them 10 feet apart and started walking across this area where I told you where the skeletons and things and all the artifacts were. And one of the things we found that afternoon, we didn't want to dig deep, we just want to go into ground maybe a foot at the most, because we don't, we're not ready for the dig yet, we're just getting ready. And uh, one of the things we found was a thing called a grape shot. Now a grape shot went inside of a cannonball, and it was about an inch and a half, inch and three quarters in diameter, it's made out of steel. And the old metal detector pinged it out, and we took the shovel and flipped it right out of the ground, there it was, right there on that site. So we're looking to see what the remnants are and what we can learn about the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. So I'm, I'm enjoying life. I'm having a good time. It's, we call it an avocation. It's not an occupation. It's an avocation. Uh, it's more than a hobby because it keeps me busy night and day. And I hope to write this all up. I hope to write it up in a book, all my experiences in archaeology and also history. And. Uh, I'm writing, not with both hands yet, I'm, I'm writing so hard, I'm almost with two hands, but anyhow, I'm trying to get all this done before the good Lord calls me home, and if I can make it. I like to write up the history of the area, and also, but particularly the history of the Big Little Elk Creek. See, the Big Little Elk Creek were extremely helpful to the Indians. I told you about the rock shelter that I dug that really got me started, and uh, but it was the power source for colonial America between Pennsylvania border and Elkton's about six miles and the water table drops 160 feet. So it was so important but every three-eighths of a mile you had a mill on it and the actually legislation passed a law. If you owned land there and you didn't build a, a, a mill on it within a couple of years somebody else could come in and confiscate it to build a mill. But they decided they'd build a mill on it because we didn't have steam yet, you see. So it was our power source for grinding our flour and, uh, you know, grain and stuff for bread, for making lumber, for making steel, making iron and all that stuff, all the power. And one of the biggest paper mills in the United States was right out here at the Providence, Carter's Mill. And they used water power. It was one of the biggest water, water wheels in, in, in Sister County. And, of course, we had Principio Farm Works, farm, uh, Principio Ironworks, which started in 1713, and they were making iron and uh, for all kind of implements and eventually war war weapons and stuff like that. But the object was to start with they were making iron, 
if you make pig iron, you make the iron and pour it into what we call pigs, like, you know, then you can send it to factories to make stuff with. So these little cricks were very, very important for a power source for colonial America. And, uh, all right, ask me another question. <laughs> How important do you think archaeology is to understanding our local history? I think it's very, very important. It's very important because we have to know where we came from. When I first started in archaeology, you could down along these rivers and stuff. You know what's happening now? They're all blacktop, and they're all in houses with signs up, no trespassing. So you can't even get to the sites anymore. You can't get there. So uh, uh, we have to do what we can while we can for future generations. And I think people enjoy going to the Smithsonian Institute, will say, and looking at all that beautiful display of cultures all over the world. We learn.